0: We're taking a couple of weeks off to record some new episodes. In the meantime, we thought you'd like to listen to one of our favourite episodes of season one, where I chatted with award-winning author, Robert Harris. Our sister shop, The Borzoy Bookshop, will be hosting a book signing with Robert at the Cotswold Christmas Fair at Dalesford Farm Shop in Kingham on Monday the 8th of November. If you're in the area, go along for a browse, buy some books and meet the man himself. He'll be there from 6.30. Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favorites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hey, it's sarah in the podcast this week i'm talking to best-selling author robert harris robert's first novel fatherland was published in 1992 to critical acclaim and he's since gone on to publish a further 13 novels the latest of which v2 was published on 17th of september robert specializes in historical fiction and he's well known for producing page-turning thrillers that keep the reader guessing until the end his work has been translated into 40 languages Several of his books have been turned into films and he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Robert, welcome to Mostly Books Meets.
1: Ah, pleasure. Nice to be here, Sarah. Thank you.
0: Well thank you. Let's just make a start straight away. As with all my guests, if you don't mind, I'd like to start off today by going back to your childhood. You were born and raised in Nottingham, and I understand you had ambitions to be a writer from an early age, is that correct?
1: Yes, it's almost as long as I can remember. That's what I wanted to do for a living. My father was a printer. And uh, he used to take me into the factory in Nottingham on a Saturday morning when he did overtime. And he used to sit me beside one of these great Heidelberg printing presses and give me a huge pile of paper. And I used to sit there and doodle away. And the smell of the ink and the noise of the machine, I think, got into my blood. And it was always an obsession from childhood.
0: I imagine something like that must have been an all-encompassing, multi-sensory experience. Just amazing. So, was there ever a point where you you ever thought that wouldn't happen, that your dreams and ambitions wouldn't come to fruition, or did you always feel like it was definitely going to happen?
1: I always thought I'd do it. I mean, it was the only thing I could do, really. I used it started off with doodling imaginary maps of imaginary countries and imaginary towns. And almost the first thing I ever bought, really, of any size with my own money, was a typewriter, a Remington portable typewriter for ten pounds very, very old, secondhand. When I was about 12 or 13, I taught myself to type. I used to write imaginary newspapers. Then when I was at school, I used to write plays and put them on with friends, and I edited the school paper. And when I went to university, I edited the paper there. And so, you know, just as long as I can remember words, putting one word after another, telling stories, um, that was what I did.
0: And it sounds like it was quite a range there because you talked about writing stories, but you also worked on a newspaper as a child. And then obviously you went on to edit papers at school and at university as well. So there's quite a mix of things, which I guess was then reflected in your books when you started to go into the world of publishing, because you've got a mix of fiction and, and nonfiction, haven't you?
1: Yes, it seems to me that there's a slight artificiality between the two. I mean, they're all designed to communicate the things that interest you, your desire to express yourself. Sometimes it's best done by simply telling the facts. Other times, the facts are best taken from behind, as it were, or rearranged or or imagined. And on the whole, I've found the best way of expressing myself has been through novels because, you know, I was lucky with my first book I created, a kind of audience, which more or less I've held on to in the nearly 30 years since. So that's been my best forum. But for me, you know, writing is writing, and I dislike the, the kind of artificial boundaries which are put. There can be as much craft and creativity in a non fiction book as there is in a novel. Similarly, you know, journalism can be very stirring and interesting and fascinating in itself, almost an art form. And within the novel, the boundaries between literary works, so called the literary novel, and the thriller or the crime novel or genre novels, it seems to me a false. So I just see myself as a writer, to be honest with you, a writer with a story to tell.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely reflected, I think, in a lot of your writing. I was going to come to that later on about the the fact that you have this mix. You have it in your new novel V2, and I've seen it before, obviously with Munich, Fatherland, where you have a mix of historical fact interwoven with fiction and fictional characters. Is that something that you, you particularly enjoy doing? Is that something that just comes quite naturally to you?
1: I think it just comes naturally to me. I mean, it, and it was there right from the start. I, in, in 1986, a long time ago, I wrote a, a book about the Hitler Diaries forgery called Selling Hitler, which became a TV series, a drama. And from that, I sort of fell into writing Fatherland because I, I became quite interested in Hitler and what might have happened if he had won the war. And I started off trying to write that as non fiction. And I realized that I needed the tools of fiction to try and explain what this world might have been like if it had won. I couldn't just do it from the plans and the photographs and the maps. I needed to put people into this world to try and convey what it was like. So fiction was a tool for me. And then I had a story. And then I realized the immense power of a story and of characters and of uh, creating people on a page that... People want to know what happens to them next. It's almost like a drug, you know, you can hook people and pull them in. And once I started it, that, then I realized that was what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. And it's it's quite addictive, as you say. I always think that it's really interesting talking to people about the stories that have impacted them over their lives, stories that either had a significant impact on their career or their mindset. But also equally, I love to talk to people about books that influenced influence as a child. So do you remember the first book you ever read as a child?
1: Oh, no, I've been puzzling over this, and I can't. I mean, I, I don't think there's any one book, you know, that I would say I remember particularly. I remember a kind of historical picture book that I read over and over and over again. I must have been about seven years old, I think. What it was called, I can't now tell you, I remember the end papers were of uh, the charge of the Scots Greys at uh, the Battle of Waterloo, so maybe someone else will remember what it was. It was quite a thick book, full of historical stories, Romans, you know, uh, Nelson, Napoleon, Francis Drake. It was just a classic book, uh, history book. That I remember very, very vividly. That was, for me, a book that I read in bed first thing in the morning and last thing at night. The first fiction I remember reading consciously were the Just William books, which I was addicted to, and Birthday and Christmas, I used to get those. From there, I progressed to Sherlock Holmes, which I loved reading, and the Siminon books, the Maygrave books, I then started to read when I was a little bit older. And then the first proper novel I read was Great Expectations, which I can remember quite clearly. That was the sort of traditional reading that I did, and those books do stay with me. But as to which was the very first, you know, I can't honestly answer that. I remember the Janet and John books when I was four or five and I was learning to read. That's probably the very earliest...
0: And I think a lot of the time our memories play tricks on us as well. It's not necessarily always the first ones that we think were the first ones we read. But um, when you talk about the Maygrade books, that's really interesting. We have a regular customer in the shop who has collected every single one as they've been republished. And the last one's just come out. So that's quite topical for us in the shop. Obviously, you went on to study literature at university, You went to Cambridge University. Did you have a period in your life during your teens, perhaps, when you didn't read as much? Because we do see a pattern in the shop when children read voraciously up until about 10 to 12, and then it kind of peters off a little bit, but then it comes back again. Did that ever happen to you, or were you always an avid reader?
1: No, I was always an avid reader. I read much more then than I do now, in fact. I always had a book on the go... My parents were very encouraging in that respect. We were, we left Nottingham and went to live in Leicestershire in a village and the school's library was the village library and you could take out four books every two weeks. And every, I think it was Tuesday e- evening or, you know, every fortnight on a Tuesday evening we would drive as a family and each take out four books. And I got into the habit of reading and I never really lost it. And I read an enormous about, you know, if you want to write, I think you've got to read. And I, I got a lot of reading into my head then of all sorts, novels, uh, history in particular. And we were very interested in politics and current events. And I lived in a world of words and in my head in, a, in many ways. And it was all doodling and trying to write things and half-finished attempts at plays and things like that. I was very interested in the theatre, and there was a series of small books about playwrights, about Wesker, Stoppard, Pinter, Arden, these people. That I read a lot, and Martin Esslin's Theatre of the Absurd, I remember reading when I was a teenager. And I used to read plays, you know, like N.F. Simpson, One Way Pendulum, those sorts of things. If you asked me when I was 17 or 18 what I might do as a writer, I would have said become a playwright if I possibly could. Oh, really? Yes, I like the form of play them. You know, I like the fact that it's a limited duration and, and concentrated. And some of my novels, particularly The Ghost, almost started life as a play. I mean, it was just four characters, one location. I then expanded it in a novel and, and made it bigger. But that, it's kernel, and when it was made into a film, you could see it. It was essentially a play
0: you know, I've, I've noticed this actually quite a bit with some of the television that's been on recently. There's something I was watching just the other night, Criminal, it's called, which is exactly that. It's been written as a television show, but actually you could be sat in a theatre watching it. And I think there's something quite lovely about that because it, it almost brings the theatre into your home. So you studied... English Literature at Cambridge University and after graduating you worked at the BBC in several national newspapers, during which time you started writing your books, starting out in nonfiction and then moving into the world of novels. Your latest book, V2, was published on the 17th of September, congratulations. What can you tell us about it?
1: Well, it uh, grew out of reading an obituary about four years ago in the Times of a woman called Eileen, young husband, who was a wife, a woman, a Royal Air Force officer in the war, and she was sent with a group of eight fellow WAFs to Belgium, newly liberated Belgium, in November 1944. They were taken to this town, Mechlin, billeted on local families, each one to a different family. It was dark, um, wintry, and the Germans had only just left, so it wasn't terribly safe. And their job was to sit in a bank vault with a slide rule, pencil and paper, and make calculations according to the radar interception or plotting of the V2s being fired at London from the Dutch coast, which was 70 miles to the north. And the idea was that with the coordinates from the radar plus the point of impact in London, they could work back the parabolic curve of the ballistic missile to pinpoint the launch sites. And if they could do this within six minutes the RAF were able to attack the launch sites before the Germans could get clear. That was the theory anyway. And when I read that, I just thought that was a wonderful character and a wonderful setting and something completely original. And so that was the starting point. Then I set out to read all I could about the V2. And I knew I'd need an antagonist, as it were, or a protagonist in the German army. And I Eventually settled on a German rocket engineer who was attached to the troops firing these missiles at London. And so these became my two characters. And the book is told alternate chapters, German, English, German, English, all the way through to the end as the life of one impacts upon the other.
0: Yeah, and it's done over a very short time frame, isn't it? The entire book covers, what was it, five days, I think it is?
1: Yes, I like to write books over a tight time frame because I think it makes you disciplined in the narrative and make make every page count and you don't have long meanderings off into something else. I have written books which are set over years, like the Cicero Trilogy or The or the Office and a Spy. But by and large, if I can, I think five days or something like that is a, is a good time frame for a novel. And each of these characters... Has a backstory that is relevant. I mean, obviously, the German engineer rocket scientist. He starts out as a teenager fooling around with rockets with Werner von Braun in suburbs of Berlin when he's sixteen, and we follow him right the way through to to the woods and firing them at London. And similarly, my uh, woman RAF officer was in photo reconnaissance. Uh, near Marlow at uh, what is now Danesfield House, which was called RAF Medmenham in the war. And she was aware of the existence of the V2 from 18 months before they actually started firing. So th- these these are the two characters.
0: That's really interesting what you said. So it's actually finding out about person that inspired one of your characters that got you interested in the v2 rather than the other way around
1: yes i i've always wanted long wanted to write a novel with a woman as a central character partly because if i look back at my books almost all of them involve a figure who is clever intelligent but somehow subtly an outsider battling for their place in the sun and I think that that was often the role of women, and indeed, to some degree, still is. And therefore, uh, for me, I thought that it was it, writing about a woman would be natural in a way, in that sense, in that their position in society was one with which I'm implicitly sympathetic. And so when I came across this character, I thought that that would be good, the, the sense of having to survive on your wits in the newly liberated area in the winter, working against the clock to, to try and defuse these rockets that were falling on London. That really gripped me, and so that was the origin of it, definitely. I mean, now that the book's written, I should think it's almost 55, 45, the, the scientist to, to the WAF officer, simply because there's so much more you have to describe about the rocket and the history of it. But uh, no, it was certainly started with with the view of her and that was the stimulus to my imagination.
0: Fantastic. When I read the book I, I loved the characterization in it, but I-, I found the details around the-, the actual rocket itself really fascinating and how it worked or, or didn't work at certain points, and I just assumed that that was where you might have started off from. So it's really lovely to hear that it's actually it was just a, a specific individual that inspired you and, and read it as an obituary in the paper, and that's amazing.
1: Now, I think there's, there's a sense in which the rocket is the third character in the book. I mean, there are three characters. There's the German scientist, there's the English mathematician wife, and then there's the rocket itself, which has a sort of personality in a way, this or at least the symbolic importance in the novel. It's a symbol of technology and ingenuity and impersonal destruction. But I, be, I did become fascinated by the way it worked, the sheer simple mechanics of it. So it does have a kind of personality in the book, I think. So I can see why you might have thought that the whole thing would have started with the rocket.
0: Yeah, and I love books like this where it makes you hungry to learn more about something that's happened so it, it made me want to research the, the rocket and made me want to find out more about it. So it was great. I was looking at my version of the of the book, which was actually a pre-published proof that we received, and it said in the book that you actually wrote a lot of this particular novel during the coronavirus lockdown. So you've obviously had a busy six months.
1: Yes, I I was a journalist, as you mentioned, and one of the things that I learned was that adrenaline a frightening deadline is very good for creativity the novels the the articles that I wrote that I got up at nine o'clock in the morning so sat at my desk at nine o'clock in the morning and I had to have finished by lunchtime and I hadn't a clue in my head were always the better articles than the ones that I'd been thinking about for four or five days and I'd done research and so on it was it was the fear of having nothing that stimulated my mind to create something And so when I came to be a novelist, I've settled into a routine of promising a novel to my publishers to come out in the autumn, started writing it in January and finished in June. And that's a nerve-wracking process. And one day, no doubt, I'll come a cropper. Now, I found it very useful. And I think the books have benefited because of it. So I started in the same way at the beginning of this year, and I had written about a quarter of the novel when uh, the pandemic struck and we were all locked down. And that, that stopped me in my tracks, actually. People say, oh, well, lockdown, that's ideal for a novelist, isn't it, for a writer? But really and truly it isn't because, well, first of all, you're obviously caught up with what's going on around you and distracted by it. Secondly, I think a lot of people... Uh, had vivid dreams and slept in a strange and shallow way. And so I felt quite exhausted. And also creativity needs recreation. I mean, you need going out and stimulating uh, fresh scenes and so on. And I didn't get that. There was nothing but being in the house. So for three weeks, I couldn't write anything at all.
0: Oh, goodness, really?
1: Yeah, I was. And I thought quite genuinely that the book would simply have to be postponed for a year i also thought well you know who the hell is going to need a novel about the v2 you know with all this going on but then i thought (laughs) i will i'm in house imprisonment here really and, and what i should do is at least come out at the end of it with something to show so i forced myself to my desk seven days a week for four hours every morning and forced myself to write and I did actually write the book, and I'm very glad I did and also I think there's something of that time is in the book I can't necessarily put my finger on it, maybe someone else can, but I feel it that in the spareness of it and in the in the imagery of it or or the sense of national threat uh, there is some there's something about that period that, that's there in the book
0: so it was your normal writing schedule but a very unusual way of of having to to deal with it with all of these changes that we're all having to uh, to live yeah. through
1: yeah there was the sense that you know we're not you know you're stuck you can't go anywhere uh, you've just got to write and it was it was like claustrophobia really and um, i couldn't escape from the book i couldn't really get it out of my mind very easily
0: And obviously, normally, when you've published a book, you'd be out and about meeting people and talking to them about the book. Obviously, you're you're here talking to me today, so thank you for that. But this is a very different way of, of doing this. How are you finding this whole process?
1: Well, it's mixed, really. In one sense, I really like getting out and meeting readers, of course, it's quite time-consuming, travelling around and getting up and speaking and then signing afterwards, and it's an exhaust. It's like an election campaign, really, when a book comes out. But I enjoy it. On the other hand, I'm have, I have, I'm not sure about literary festivals and readers meeting writers personally. I think you should meet your readers on the page or possibly in this format discussing a book rather than seeing them in the flesh. There's something about performance and speaking about a book which seems to me to destroy the magic of a book. And very often, you know, you go and do an event at a bookshop or in a literary festival, and people listen to you uh, very politely and applaud and enjoy it, and then they go and they don't buy the book because they've seen you, they've heard what was in your mind and your preoccupations, you've described, say, the V2 programme, And they feel that's it. I mean, who needs the novel? So in a funny kind of way, I think this has redirected the emphasis onto the printed page, onto the words itself. And there's something to be said for that in a strange way. Um, I don't think the growth of literary festivals has necessarily been as heralded a great new age of brilliant novels, quite frankly, but possibly rather the reverse. You know, everybody gets locked into a constant round of travelling around the country trying to sell their book rather than actually sitting quietly and trying to write them.
0: Yeah, and speaking to authors, I think an awful lot of people that write books don't naturally feel that comfortable sitting in front of a crowd of people talking. So actually, yeah, there's something to be said for, for what you're saying there, How letting, the, letting the books and the words do the talking for them.
1: I'll give you an example of this. Um One of the books, one of the authors that's been most formative for me when I was young was George Orwell. And Orwell's voice on the page, not just in the novels, but perhaps almost more in the essays and the journalism, is very cool and it's very classical and it's a voice in your own head and a calm, sort of sensible voice. Orwell himself spoke with a high-pitched Etonian accent. And one of the peculiarities of his life, is that although he broadcast a lot, not a single recording of Orwell's voice exists. We don't know, we we can't hear him. And I think one of the reasons that Orwell still exerts such a hold is precisely because of that. We don't hear a clipped voice talking like this. We just have this wonderful voice in our heads. And I think that that's very important. And it's mercy that we don't have Jane Austen reading her own novels. Or, you know, we can... Give them our voice or whatever voice we want, and I think that that's very important for writing. It's not obviously not the case for for actors or uh, for uh, politicians or people who involves a public performance. But a writer's performance is on the page, very intimately in the head of the reader, and it's inimical. And it seems to me uh, almost a betrayal of the writers task to go around and perform constantly i mean obviously some exceptions like dickens but by and large i think writers should be read and not seen
0: yeah because i guess if you and i read the same book we could have a completely different voice in our head for those characters couldn't we so yes i get what you're saying completely
1: i once was at a party and harry enfield i was introduced to harry enfield and he looked at me with absolute horror And he clapped his hands over his ears and said, I'm reading your book now. I don't want to hear your voice. And he turned tail and ran away. (laughs) Uh, And it seemed very strange and bizarre behaviour at the time, but I think he had a point.
0: That's brilliant. So a lot of people are turning to books at the moment. I mean, I think given the last six months, a lot of people have found time to read when they might not have done previously. Are you finding that's the case, given these strange times we're living through? Are you reading a lot?
1: Yes, I've read. I have read more than than usual. And anecdotally, travelling round, you know, I haven't done much, but what I have done and talking to my publishers, there's definitely there is more interest in books. More books are being sold, um, especially outside London. In London, the bookshops are really hit by the fact there's no tourist trade anymore. But out here, for instance, Hungerford Books, which is local to me, um, they're doing a roaring trade. And I think bookshops generally uh, are doing well. And people are reading a lot more. And that's, you know, one of the good things that's come out of this whole event. TV production, film production is difficult at the moment. And there's, you know, they're running out of new content. But books... Those you can produce. You can get around a virus. You can by producing and printing books and distributing them, that's possible.
0: Yeah, and we we certainly found that our readers fell into one of two camps, particularly during lockdown. There was either real escapism or there was a lot of people actually interested in some quite dark pandemic based novels. So <laughs> it was one extreme or the other we found. What was the last book you read?
1: Um I read Rodden by Curtis Sittenfeld, which I enjoyed a lot, which you probably know is the fictionalized or speculative life of uh, Hillary Clinton if she never married Bill Clinton. So she meets him, but they don't get married. Uh, And I enjoyed that a lot. I thought it was a clever way of writing about politics. I thought the characters were believable. And it was entertaining. You know, it was a good story. So I think that was probably the last uh, book that I read, certainly the last novel that I read.
0: Do you tend to just have one book on the go at any one time or are you one of these people that can dip in and out of different books?
1: No, I have a lot on the go. And I have to say rather shamefacedly that mostly what I read are the books relative or or relevant to the subject that I'm writing about. So, you know, I have had bizarre periods of reading endless tomes about the Roman Catholic Church, then the Munich Agreement, and now a lot of books about the V2. So, you know, uh, it... I have a different reading habits to most people. But I particularly like, um, as you would probably expect, politics and history. I'm just about to start the new biography of John F. Kennedy or the first volume of it. During lockdown, I was greatly entertained during the early part of it by Craig Brown's book about the Beatles, simply because it was about something that was optimistic and reminded me of my own childhood, you know, and the 60s and the music and... The optimism of that time. Uh, that was a very good lockdown book. And another book during lockdown uh, was "Love in the Blitz," um, the letters of uh, love letters from a young woman to her fiancé who went through all the bombing of London. That was, of course, slightly relevant to V two, but uh, uh, it was also, you know, a fascinating book about uh, a young person alive at that time.
0: Yeah, and that ability to be able to survive these very difficult circumstances. That is a great book. And also the the Beatles book you referred to, that was another one that sold incredibly well for us during lockdown. And we as a bookshop don't sell a great amount of books around music. It's just not something that sells well for us. But that one keeps going.
1: Oh, that's good.
0: I have a theory that everybody has a book or a selection of books that has had a significant impact on them, um, whether that's a professional impact or a personal impact a uh, book they remember reading that had some kind of major impact on their life. Has, have you had a book like that or a collection of books like that?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I certainly think there have been whole swathes of books, the, the ones that I mentioned earlier, certainly, and uh, like Great Expectations, which I found a very almost perfect novel in terms of theme, character and plot, actually. It has a brilliant story. But if I had to choose one book, um, That's influenced me and probably changed the way that I, my life in a way. Probably it would be George Orwell's 1984. I read it when I was sort of 14 or 15 years old. And that fusion of political ideas with a story, with a thriller, actually, is what it is, that had a profound impact on me. And later, when I read Orwell's essays and I came across this phrase of his, that he wanted to turn political writing into an art, I understood what he meant. That is that there are certain things that have interest in the world around you, political things, that are maybe best approached through the imagination um, and rather than head on in journalism and or non-fiction. And, and for me, 1984 is the supreme example of that. The ideas behind 1984, which were about management theory and so on, that Orwell wrote her essays about. He could have written the most brilliant essay in the world about the political um, consequences of management theory and the way that the world was divided into these three great powers, but it would have been, you know, no one would read it now. But if you take those same ideas and you create characters and you create a story and a world and you make jokes about clocks chiming 13 and so on, and you create that whole extraordinary vision of his, then you transmute politics into art. And uh, so for me, that was, that was perhaps the most influential book. In fact, almost certainly the most influential book. It's got lots of flaws in it. It's not actually really very well written, to be br- brutally honest, when you look at it. But that doesn't matter, the force of it carries you through. And it's a book that really has changed the world. It's given us phrases like Big Brother and Newspeak and Thought Crime and all the rest of it that have changed the world. Um, I think that it I think that that's it is the great novel in fact of the twentieth century. It's not the greatest work of the imagination. It's not the greatest work of insight or language. But as a single emblem of what a novel can do, Nineteen Eighty-Four is unmatched, in my opinion.
0: And there's a great edition of it that we is the one that we tend to stock, where the actual title is blacked out; it's censored, which <laughs> I just think is fantastic. <laughs> just going back to V two for a minute, um, we met last year when you were uh, when you came to Abingdon to talk about your previous novel, The Second Sleep, which was a novel based in the future, but it read as if it was historical fiction. Uh, obviously, the one you've written now is is historical fiction. So there are there are interlinking themes, but they are quite different. Does that mean, because you have quite varied content in your books, that you have to kind of deal with them one at a time? Or do you have the ideas all kind of moving around at the same time and splintering off? How does it work?
1: Well, I, you know, as an idea comes to me, I jot it down. And may, if I've got a spare day or two, I might do a bit of research on it and just, to just keep it simmering, as it were, in a saucepan on the the back of the range. And then when I've finished a novel, I'll see which of the couple of ideas that I've got in the back of my mind, which might work next. That's sort of the way in which I operate. You know, I don't write about the same character or the same period, or even particularly in the same genre, um, and I like that. I like moving around. Um, I hugely admire – I'm not comparing myself to him – but I hugely admire Stanley Kubrick because he brought his imagination to bear on everything. You know, the First World War, uh, science fiction, the uh, 18th century. He 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 just ranged around and horror, of course, with The Shining. And I, I admire that and I like that idea that you're not pinned to one particular time or even necessarily – One particular genre, the books are very different I mean, there's a world of difference between, say, V2 and an officer and a spy. But that's the pleasure to me, not to be pigeonholed in one particular genre, but to uh, range around.
0: Yeah, it keeps your options open for future projects. Now that V2's out there for people to enjoy, what will you be working on next?
1: Well, I've got a couple of ideas. I don't want to talk about them now because, you know... It doesn't take – if you take an idea out too early and start exposing it, it's like some tender shoot being exposed to the frost. You know, you can easily kill it. So, uh, But I, I do have an idea, which, I, you know, I hope to do next. You know, writing for me is a kind of obsession. So the sooner I can get into it, the happier I will be.
0: Absolutely. And then your January to June routine will yeah. start again next year in 2020.
1: So if not next year, maybe the year after.
0: And maybe take a year off after this craziness of 2020. Well, Robert Harris, it's been an absolute honour to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, I love your writing, I love your books, and thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. A pleasure. And best of luck with V2.
1: Thank you. Good to talk to you.
0: All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.